James chapter 5, as we make our way through this short and powerful letter, we uh, came last week to the last chapter of the book, and I'd like to begin reading uh, in verse 7. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. We pray that you might grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, patience in the midst of suffering is not something that is instilled in us as 21st century Americans. Take, for example, the medicine aisle. If you go to the grocery store or to, uh, to the, the pharmacy and you can look at all the different types of medicine that advertise that the medicine works fast and speedy. Indeed, that is what we have come to be used to as 21st century Americans. We want immediate relief, immediate gratification, and immediate satisfaction. And if we don't get it right away, we become impatient. Indeed, the past several months, indeed, the the majority of this year has taught us one thing, that, that we cannot get what we want right away. But when we hear James begin his letter, by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, we scratch our heads and we think, what are you thinking, James? I know trials are gonna come, but, but we, these trials are something that we might rejoice over. Well, James, towards the end of his letter, comes back to how he began it, by telling us of the need for patience. But the purpose of patience isn't just patience for patience sake, but there is an end goal, a design, a purpose that God has in mind. And so as we consider that purpose today, it's important to remember this passage in its context. Last week, those of you who were with us, we saw the most somber and unrelenting language in James's letter as he condemned the unbelieving rich of his day, warning them of the imminent doom and destruction that is going to come upon them. He denounced them for their, for their life of luxury and selfish indulgence, all at the expense of the poor whose blood they had on their hands. While they defrauded, condemned, and even murdered the poor believers, those righteous believers followed the teaching of the Lord and did not resist their oppressors but turned the other cheek since they were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
but you can imagine that that is not easy. And so then James turns now to his believing audience, calling them brothers time and time again, and urging them for patience, even as they cry out, how long, O Lord, how long must we endure such suffering? And so he says, be patient, brothers. He says, be patient, therefore. You see, he's tying together what he said previously with what he says now to the believers in light of the certain and imminent judgment of their oppressors, he urges patience, literally to have a long temper. We see something very similar to this in the book of Revelation where John sees the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And John tells us then that they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so even as they are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you judge our oppressors, you avenge our blood, they're told to wait a little bit longer, to be patient, even as they are being oppressed. But again, this isn't patience with no end in sight. It's not just wait, wait, and wait. But there is something that we are waiting for. As James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. You see, we are waiting for Jesus' return when he will come to judge the living and the dead. Our patience has an end goal. It's something that we look forward to, where our hope will become a reality and our faith will become sight. And as James typically does, he appeals to everyday life to illustrate a point, bringing out the farmer. Now, boys and girls, farming requires a lot of patience. Maybe you uh, at home or at school have taken a seed and planted it in the ground and then, and then covered it up with soil and watered that seed. Well, does that seed spring up right away? Well, no, you gotta wait. You gotta be patient. And that's exactly what a farmer does when he plants the seed. He needs to wait for the better part of a year before he is reaping the fruits, the precious fruits from the ground. James tells us he waits for the early and the late rains, which are essential for a good crop. The climate in Palestine is very similar to the climate we have here in Southern California. And uh, farmers will typically plant their seeds in the fall during this time. And they need to get those early rains just like we had this morning. It's funny, I was thinking about this farmer who was patiently waiting for the rain just this morning as I was patiently waiting for the rain to stop. And thankfully, it did. But not only do they need those early rains which come in the fall, but they need those late rains which come in the spring just before the, the, uh, they, they reap the fruit from the ground. It requires patience. But whereas the Palestinian farmer may have waited in vain for a good rainy season, our hopes will certainly not be disappointed. And so then James applies it to the believer in verse 8. You, therefore, be patient. But you see, we're patient for the coming of the Lord, which will most certainly happen. It may or may not rain. This, we may or may not get a lot of rain this year, but Jesus will most certainly come back. 
And so we are told to establish our hearts. This is the appropriate response of the believer. All of our mind, our emotions, and our will ought to be directed to where Christ is seated and from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. Even as we saw in Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us that when Christ appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. And so our hearts ought to be directed towards heaven and our minds ought to be set on heavenly things, not on things of this earth which will pass away. And James tells us that we need to do this because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is near, he is saying. But we might pause and wonder at this point, well, wait a minute. James wrote this in the first century, in, in around the AD 40 to AD 50. How on earth can he say that the coming of the Lord is at hand when we all know that Jesus hasn't come back yet? It's been, it's been almost 2,000 years since he has written this. Was James and the other New Testament writers who spoke of the imminent return of the Lord, were they wrong somehow? Well, no, they were not wrong. When James says that the, that the return of the Lord is at hand, he's not necessarily saying it's going to happen soon, but what he is saying is it can happen at any moment. It is imminent in that sense. You see, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he ushered in the last days. And so we've been living in the last days for the better part of 2,000 years. And at his ascension, when he brought our glorified flesh into heaven and poured out his spirit on earth, he brought heavenly realities into the present age. And he, by the power of his spirit, is currently gathering his elect whom he has purchased with his blood. But here's the important thing to note. The work of Christ for our redemption is finished. It's completed. And so there is no other, there, there is no other redemptive historical act that needs to take place before Christ returns. And so in that sense, it is imminent. It can happen at any minute. It can happen right now, or it can happen another 2,000 years from now. But regardless, we can say the Lord's return is at hand, or as James says in verse 9, the judge is at the door. So we are urged to be patient all the while we are eagerly anticipating his return and ought to be prepared for it, for it to happen at any minute. But as we are patiently waiting, it's easy for us when situations in life become difficult, it's easy for us to begin to grumble and to complain and to take it out on others around us. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We read that they grumbled and complained and they were grumbling and complaining against Moses and against one another. But James tells us not to do that as we patiently await the Lord's return and the end of our suffering. Again here, James reminds us of, uh, of the fact that part of pure and undefiled religion is taming our tongue especially in light of the return of the Lord, especially in light of the fact that the judge is at the door, we better watch what we say. James already told us that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion 
is worthless. And so giving unfettered rein to our tongues, whether it's in the form of harsh critical speech or in the form of grumbling and complaining against one another, is a sign that one has not been born again by the Spirit of God or is not living, seeking to live under Christ's royal law of liberty. And so James tells us not to grumble against one another, lest we be judged. Here's echoing the words of his Lord, who says, judge not, lest you be judged. It says, if James says, grumble not, lest you be judged. Or as he said previously, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Or stated positively, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, we might ask at this point, well, should we just keep all of our frustrations and emotions pent up? Should we just keep a stiff upper lip and never complain or groan at all, even if we are suffering and being oppressed in life? Well, no. But rather than venting venting out our frustrations to one another, we are encouraged in Scripture to pour out our frustrations to the Lord. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For while we are still in this tent, referring to our bodies, he says, We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we but that we but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so it's perfectly acceptable for us to groan. Even the Spirit causes us to groan inwardly as we eagerly desire the redemption of our bodies, the glorification of our bodies. And so God wants us to groan to Him, just not to one another. Well, previously, James appealed to everyday life, applying the patience of the farmer and the need to to be patient for the believer. Now he directs our attention to the Old Testament and to the Old Testament prophets in particular. See, boys and girls, it was the job of the prophet to speak the word of the Lord to his people. They were his mouthpiece, as it were. And yet being the Lord's mouthpiece, speaking the word of the Lord more often than not, would make them very unpopular with the people. Since the word, the message that they brought to the people of God was one of condemnation since the people, since the Israelites had rebelled against God. And so they brought upon themselves all sorts of suffering and persecution. James doesn't mention mention any prophets by name, but you can think of several. You can think of Elijah and how he was hunted down by King Ahab. You can think of Isaiah, who, according to tradition, was was sawed in two at the end of his life. Or Jeremiah, who was thrown in the pit and locked up in prison because he had a message of doom and gloom for the sins of the people. And we might think, man, how miserable it must have been to have been a prophet of God. And yet Jesus said they were blessed. Indeed, He said, blessed are all those who are reviled and persecuted, for whom uh, uh, people utter all kinds of evil against them on his account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And so if you are being reviled and persecuted for your Christian faith, you can rejoice because your reward will be great in heaven, even as the reward of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Elijah was great. And so James tells us that we count those blessed who remain steadfast. And yet what type of blessing is he talking about? Well, obviously, the blessing of being made more and more like Christ. As he opened the letter by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God is doing in us as he sends suffering, as he sends trials of various kinds to us. He's making us more like Christ so that we will be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Although James didn't mention any prophets by name in verse 10, he does single out one Old Testament saint who is renowned for the immense amount of suffering he endured. Indeed, he mentions Job and the steadfastness of Job. Boys and girls, you probably know the story about Job. He was a very rich and godly man who lived a very long time ago. And yet in one day, all of Job's cattle, all of his sheep were taken by bands of raiders. His servants were murdered. And his seven sons and three daughters were tragically killed in a freak windstorm. And to add insult to injury, after he had suffered all that loss, Job broke out with loathsome sores all over his body from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. We know in reading the book of Job that those things were not just random events. They They didn't happen to him by chance, but they came from God's fatherly hand. They were all part of God's design. And Job recognized that even at the beginning when he said, in response to all those things, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told there in Job chapter 1 that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But of course, that's just the opening chapter of the book of Job. There's a lot left in the book. And for the vast majority of the book, 30-some-plus chapters, Job and his friends plumb the depths of human knowledge in trying to figure out why on earth these things have come upon him. And towards the end of the book, somewhat self-righteously, Job demands that the Lord give him an answer. He demands that God answer, why did you let these things happen to me? Well, hardly a picture of stoic resignation. Hardly a picture of somebody keeping a stiff upper lip. No, Job cried out to the Lord. You see, James's point here is not that Job never doubted or wavered in his faith, but that he persevered into the end. He let steadfastness have its full effect in him. And we see, therefore, the purpose of the Lord, literally the telos that the Lord had in mind. Now, here this word might be translated the end, as uh, as if James is referring to the end of the book when Job is blessed with twice as much material prosperity that he had at the beginning. 
But I don't think that's what James is highlighting out of the book of Job. No, rather, he's highlighting the Lord's purpose, his design, what he had in mind as he allowed this immense suffering to occur in Job's life. You see, God's design was that he was perfecting his faith through the various trials. And in turn, James says, this shows us something about God. He says this shows us that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I don't know about you, but in my initial reading of the book of Job, the main takeaway I get is not that God is compassionate and merciful. Perhaps you would think that God is powerful or sovereign or even mysterious, but compassion, mercy, yeah. That's what James sees when he reads the book of Job, that God is compassionate. As a matter of fact, he says he is very compassionate and merciful. Well, how is it that James can get that from this book? Well, he gets it because he sees that God will only give us what we could bear. He's compassionate in that sense. He knows us, even as a father has compassion upon his children, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust and he will only give us what we can bear. And when we are overcome, his grace is more, more than sufficient for us. As, as, he, as, as uh, Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 12, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And he does all of this out of his pure grace, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve so that we might share in his holiness. Not about you, but in conclusion, I think it's important to note that when we are urged to be patient and steadfast in the midst of sufferings, it's important to be reminded of the fact that God is full of compassion and mercy. Indeed, all of these things are not signs of God's displeasure, but they are signs of his love for us. He's treating us like a father does his children so that we would be more and more like him. May God grant to us such patient endurance, even in the midst of sufferings, as we eagerly await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman and to be born under the law, to live a life of suffering for us and for our salvation. We thank you that that suffering culminated even in the shameful death on the cross where you bore the wrath of God for us and you removed from us even the evil of sufferings. And so we thank you, O Lord, that you are full of compassion and mercy, even as you treat us like a father and conform us more and more into your image. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us patience as we await your return. And we ask this in your name. Amen.